Hi everyone, this is Sound of Play, part of the Kane and Rince podcast network. Here we celebrate everything to do with video game music. In early June I had the absolute pleasure of chatting to Jason Graves, one of the most versatile and pioneering game composers working. He's been at it a long time, but it's likely that many people would have become cognizant of his work through the BAFTA-winning Dead Space scores. He went on to score a wide range of titles, including the 2013 Tomb Raider reboot, The Order 1886, Far Cry Primal, and VR title Moss. And he's now pretty much the supermassive horror guy, the go-to for the studio series of branching narrative games starting with Until Dawn and continuing with the Dark Pictures anthology, including 2019's Man of Medan and the upcoming Little Hope. Jason and I covered a range of things, including the musical limitations he imposes on himself for each project, crafting horrible noises to make people jump, and covering what the next generation of consoles might unlock for music and audio teams. He's a lovely chap, and I'm sure you'll enjoy his responses. tell me a little bit about your background about uh, how you got to this point of games composition i know you started composing games quite a long time ago now but there was a, a path leading up to it presumably there there was i uh my band director in high school actually it had the coolest thing now you have to picture this is like early 90s right i love music but literally, the epiphany that changed my entire life, besides having amazing parents that, that let me sort of pursue my passion and my dream, the epiphany that changed my life was uh, my awesome band director had five minutes every morning where he just talked about what he did. And he had bought a new keyboard that previous weekend. It was a Roland U20 for all the geeks out there. But he brought it in. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> and he said, let me play you some new sounds. And he played a piano sound. And I was like, that's cool. Then he played like a harpsichord. Then he played a harp sound. Then he played some strings. And then he did a drum beat. And then he played a choir. And of course, it was all very provincial by today's audio standards. But it was one of those, like, the, the, the clouds parted and the, 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 the provincial choir sang and the harps were strummed. And I remember just thinking, like, I'm not sure how he's doing that, but I want to do that. That's really, really cool. Because I was just a drummer, um, I couldn't really play anything other than like guitar and piano. And I love the idea of having access to other kinds of sounds. So I went to undergraduate school for music, went to graduate school for music, uh, film and TV at the time. And I did some work there in, in California, but I'm from North Carolina. I had some chances to do some indie film and stuff because back in the day, North Carolina in Wilmington here in the States uh, was a big TV and film, kind of indie film like Hotbed. There was a lot of stuff going on. So I moved back from L.A., where I had gone to graduate school, to North Carolina, like in 1998. And for about five or six years, just did a bunch of anything I could get my hands on kind of jobs. But eventually, I found someone who knew someone who knew someone in Australia, of all places, that need music for a video game. And it was the most... Uh, like creatively satisfying job I had had since I had gotten out of school. Uh, I literally went from, you know, um, with commercials, let's say, I would be working on with, with someone else, a, like a Honda commercial. 
this is an international, like a big deal commercial. And we do 100, 150, sometimes 200 or more versions of this 30-second commercial. I mean, just it's completely different sometimes. Sometimes just change one thing. Sometimes change half the things. It was more math than it was music. <laughs> and it just was not my was not my thing, writing 30 seconds of music in the span of six weeks. Compare that to taking the same six-week span, and I got to write 45 minutes of music. <laughs> and it was just like, oh, this is what I want to do. I mean, that's the kind of jump where with the, the first example, you're being paid to overthink it. And with the second example, you're paid to just go as fast as possible, you know, just compose, 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 compose. Yeah. You know, if anything's wrong, we'll fix it later. And that actually interestingly ties together with that that moment of inspiration for you that that actually it was the possibility of being a multi-instrumentalist on one instrument with the, you know, with the synthesizer combined with you finding the fun in kind of having to compose. And I know from the Austin Wintery podcast, you were saying that that first game was actually a licensed game. So a gamer might assume that would be quite a soul-sucking job that, that, you know, it wouldn't be particularly creatively valuable. But you're, you know, the way you tell it is just it was freedom to just go mad. It was great. I mean, it really was kind of my second epiphany. The first one was in high school when I wanted to do music. The second one was when I realized I wanted to do music in games. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just about, about the creative freedom or the satisfaction or the amount of music that I got to write. The people that I was working with, even through email, you know, back in 2000 uh, or 2001, whenever this was, it was a much more nurturing, collaborative kind of relationship with the game developers than it was like a decision by committee in another room uh, with like commercials and, and, and film and, uh, and television. But I was also at the very bottom of the totem pole when I was doing commercials and film and television <laughs> back in the mid-90s. And I've, I've revisited doing some music for those things in the last couple of years. And it's a completely different experience because it's 20 years later and the people I'm working with now, you know, we're all the same age and we've sort of come up together. So it's a different vantage point kind of doing the same thing that I was experiencing 20 years ago. But, you know, I mean, there's a lot more trust and there's much more foundation there than when they were just hiring the assistant, this kid <laughs> that was like an assistant of the composer that they were actually working with. It's just, it's, it's different. But games is definitely, Austin and I have talked about this a lot. It's like with, with film and TV and commercials, it's all about the director. Mm. It's the director's vision, right? And if you're working on a film, you're working very closely with the director, how they feel the scene should go, what emotions you're going with. And with games... I mean, you do have, you'll have a creative director or you'll have an audio director that maybe is your liaison that you talk with the most, but it's very much a team effort. Yeah. Like everybody has to kind of put in equal share of blood, sweat and tears. 
And they're all doing it for all the right reasons. Like they want to make a really cool game. You know, they're not in service to one person. There's there's just so much going on with games. As you got into the industry, the fidelity of games was obviously coming up in leaps and bounds in terms of the HD visuals and uh, memory for music and that kind of thing. Just the amount of content has to be created. But if the team isn't functioning, I don't even see how it can possibly work. Now, I'm sure in film... TV, there of course there's moving parts or whatever, but those are older industries, and and one feels like games are more at the mercy of kind of technology and having to always be running to catch up with technology. So of course teamwork is essential, um, which is going to change things for the for the composer, isn't it? Yeah, most definitely. It's it's a it's the kind of relationship that I I really enjoy, and that doesn't mean that I don't like film or TV music. I still love it. But it's like games, I think it's that, that magical combination of the amount of music they need and the fact that they're trying so hard to be unique. And um, I, I, maybe one or two games I've been given some temp music, which is what we call music that is pre-existing from another film or another game. Hey, Jason, we want something that maybe sounds like this. <laughs> that hardly ever happens in games. It happened all the time. For commercials and TV and film, there's always temp music. And in games, usually what I get is, what do you think would be unique sounding music that, that we could have under like our game that would separate it from other games? And if people listen to 10 seconds of this music, they would know it was from our game. And that's the kind of challenge that I really love, which spills over into, if you know anything about my back catalog... It's all over the place because I'm pushing <laughs> boundaries and trying to do as many different things with as many different instruments as possible, all because I love the, the, the end goal of making music as unique as the games that the music is made for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it echoes something that I was talking to Gareth Coker about recently. We were talking about him being the melody guy, right? I think about Martin Stig Anderson as the noise guy. Yeah. And then I guess in, in my mind with your work, I thought previously about you as the percussion guy but right. now i guess it's more like you're the the musical palette guy or the texture guy you're the what houdini box can i put myself in for this project and then try and escape <laughs> out of <laughs> i love that now i took piano lessons as a kid and i taught myself guitar and bass and i can bang strum or strike anything and make it sound like some sort of a drum or possibly melodic musical instrument and I can play vibes and marimba and, and keyboards and stuff. But really, I'm a drummer is what it comes down to. So a lot of my early scores were very much based on rhythm uh, just because, well, Dead Space, for example. really, really well done horror game and they just wanted it to be really scary. That was the only directive I got from EA and the only one. I mean, it's one of those understatements. Oh, we just want you to write the scariest music that's ever been heard by a human in the history of sound. That was, <laughs> that was literally what they said. And I thought, okay, well, um, you know, what, what makes music comforting? I mean, 
regular intervals and, and, and melodies that you recognize and come back, a harmonic structure, you know, pleasing chords. So I'm just going to throw all that out and not use any of it. <laughs> But if I'm not using pitch or harmony or um, chords or anything like that, all that was left was rhythm. So I just fell back onto my drummer roots. And honestly, that was the first score. I'd been working in games for about eight years then. That's the first time that I felt like being just a drummer, and I'm doing air quotes for all of our podcast listeners, uh, being just a drummer was actually a great benefit because I used it just like... The art of war, right? Use your enemy's um, greatest strength as their weakness or use your weakness as your greatest strength, however it goes. I was using the fact that I was just a drummer as a strength and I played to that and, and really encouraged myself um, you know, to explore rhythms and do things that would seem normal to me but apparently just threw everybody else completely off balance, which was the whole purpose of the score. <laughs> so it was kind of a first, a full circle sort of thing for me. It's like, yes, I am a drummer, um, and I can bang on lots of things, but uh, I can also make the orchestra my drum, essentially. Mm. You know, a, a live orchestra. They can, they can play all this crazy stuff too. So what you're saying is that Jason Graves is the thing that goes bump in the night. <laughs> Both literally and figuratively. <laughs> Should I say thump in the night? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's interesting because, I mean, uh, uh, gamers who have played, you know, even a moderate amount of games over the years, over the decades of the of the medium, they've heard a lot of percussion in games. I don't know how much gamers ever think about percussion and rhythm, right? Now, obviously, something like Thumper or a rhythm action game, they're focused more on it. And uh, Thumper, I think they even say they might be quoting you or something when they say they're rhythm violence. It's a rhythm violence game. But but generally in most games, there's a there's a lot going on rhythmically. And I would assume I don't think the gamers think about it too closely. But what do you think are the fundamentals of rhythm in game music? I guess I'd say um, gameplay music rather than cutscene music. Well, from a training perspective, interestingly enough, my undergrad was a double in music composition and percussion performance. But my music composition teacher was also the lead percussion instructor, and he loved 20th century music. So training-wise, I didn't really get a lot of real-world experience in terms of, <laughs> oh, hey, you're going to need to write music for a commercial or for a video game in a couple of years, and here's some stuff that would really help you, because you're in school and you should learn. It was very much like way out there things and, and like learning how to use little drum triggers to, to trigger synthesizer sounds like on a, on a cereal box and then call it cereal music, which is a 20th century term. Um, he was very much into John Cage. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm glad you appreciated that little inside joke. 
So, so training wise, I actually got nothing. Um, it was all born out of having my first microphone and being in a room that was relatively soundproof and just starting to, to bang on things that, that kind of worked. From a, from a player's perspective, honestly, I think this works for music in general as well. I think that everything comes down to tension and release. Yeah. And the tension being the question mark, what's happening with the music? Um, maybe the time signature isn't predictable, right? It's bouncing around a little bit or it's not in a straightforward, like predictable kind of rhythm. It, it has hiccups. You can't figure out where it's going to land. Mm-hmm. That would be tension. Or music that's building to something. If you're in a horror game and you're walking down a hallway and it feels like everything's sort of floating musically and tense and things are rising and the, the, you know, you sort of that like constant slow build. And then the release would be, uh, you know, the, the monster around the corner and the music goes boo or <laughs> the rhythm sort of stops playing because the tension, the, the bad guy that could be there Turns out he's not there, and then you hear like soothing string chords. That would be a release, or maybe the rhythm just drops down to like a doom, 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 something like very simple and reassuringly predictable, right? That rhythmically speaking, to me, are the the two big differences. So if I'm doing a game like Far Cry Primal, which is also a lot of percussion uh, and like wind flutes and Aztec death whistles and all this crazy stuff. <laughs> there was no release in that score except for like maybe two cues, and that kind of happened at the beginning. The whole score was tension. can't even listen to it because it's just all these crazy (laughs) rhythms and crazy um, harmonies and like Maluka screaming and (laughs) death whistles and me chanting and feeling really silly like breathing hard into the mic (laughs) Um, and pitching my voice down so it sounds like a giant caveman, right? That was all tension. Is that quite exhausting day-to-day to kind of produce, you know, keep yourself in such a state of tension? But is your release then at the end of the day where you just walk out of the studio and you put on some, like, ambient chill or Brian Eno or something? Yeah, you know, I think I think maybe I can answer your question by a very simple statement. Um, when I was working on the first Dead Space game, I was one of those weird people that I, I never drank alcohol. I never had beer, even through college, right? Everyone's drinking beer and going to parties, and I didn't do any of that. I was the geek that was in the practice room on a Friday night learning some piano thing from, like, a, a Bach prelude book or something by myself. So I never drank. I didn't like the way anything tasted. And Dead Space allowed me to appreciate wine. <laughs> Drove you to drink, you mean? (laughs) Yes, yes. It literally drove me to drink. Every night I'd finish a cue and I would just be emotionally exhausted. And all I would think of is, oh, I knew my wife was fixing dinner and I was looking forward to having a glass or two of wine with dinner just to sort of release that tension. Because, you know, there was 
no release in, in Dead Space either. Um, I, I think it's easy to listen to two, two minutes of that music and think, wow, that's, that's really awful. <laughs> that's very <laughs> tense music. But that takes eight or ten hours to write. So that's, I'm in that state for eight or ten hours that day, you know, technically trying to work through everything. <laughs> Since you came to games uh, through a contact of a contact, having been kind of outside the games industry, are you much of a, a gamer in terms of hours spent and, and genres covered? Or is it something that you came to after you started working and you, you play a little, little bit just to kind of keep up? Or do you like horror games like Dead Space or something? Or is that not a chosen hobby or pastime? I've always been really bad at games. And... <laughs> Part of the reason is I can blame my best friend in high school because he was really, really good at them. Right. So whether we were playing on a console at home or we were in an arcade playing like 1941 or something like that, he could play on one quarter for 45 minutes. <laughs> and then he'd finally die or maybe he'd give me his last life and, and I'd die within 45 seconds. <laughs> I was just – I think my problem was I was spending – I mean I was taking snare drum lessons, vibraphone lessons, mm. piano lessons – uh, that was just in high school. And then in middle school, I was actually taking like dance lessons and acting lessons wow. and singing lessons. And I was pretty much all about the music. And I didn't devote a lot of time to practicing quote unquote games. So I was never very good. And then I started writing for them. And I discovered that, oh, you can have a dev box and basically turn on God mode so you never <laughs> die and you have unlimited ammunition. Well, that didn't help me be any better. <laughs> so it's sort of been like me limping along as best I can. Honestly, even when I have a dev box, I still prefer to have the developers make movies for me. You know, let's say it's a 15-minute level and I'm doing some music for it. I'd rather have a quick time of that level because I'll put it in my computer and I'll write music to the movie, almost like I were composing for a film or something. And I can back it up and start it again. And I don't need to sit there and concentrate on playing the game and try to think about what the music needs to do or listen to music that's already been in the game that I wrote. It's easier for me to be single-minded in um, focusing on the music. And, and that's just me. I, I know Austin is like a game fiend. He plays all the time. I just can't do that. I don't know where he gets the time because it seems like he's always working, always being fabulous on social media and always playing games. There's like 80,000 versions of him. I know. That's really interesting, though. You say that. It makes kind of perfect sense, though, because to watch a developer play the game is to watch a developer play at the pace that the design intends, right? And if, if you're the percussion guy, the rhythm guy it seems like it'd be more natural for you to watch someone playing at the intended pace that players are going to have and be able to kind of even abstractly mark that out for rhythm and pacing in your mind as opposed to, as you say, worry about the actual, you know, playing yourself and getting stuck or, or getting stuck in a wall in a, in a kind of alpha code or whatever. So it does make sense that that would be a helpful way to go about it, I think. It does strike me that composers have got other things on their mind and there's there's time that needs to be spent getting good at this instrument this new plug-in you know pro tools than necessarily should be spent mastering the game that's a good point and a lot of that honestly comes down to development time dead space i played we i had a dev kit and i played it all the time on god mode of course because i would have died <laughs> in two seconds but we spent two and a half years on that game. So I knew the whole thing like the back of my hand. Right, right. If you contrast that with something like Far Cry Primal, 
which I did not have a dev kit for, but I had like three months to do almost three hours of music. Wow. There okay. was no time. I, I hardly got any uh, gameplay back, not because they were insensitive to me needing to hear the music in the game. No one had time. There were four people putting music in constantly, and we, were, we barely made it. Um, it just depends on the luxury of time. This uh, uh, palette switching um, between different games and within games, so orchestral palettes and electronic palettes and choral, do you prefer as a composer to find the right palette first? And I know that you've recounted this in terms of Dead Space, in terms of selling them on the idea before you could even record the music because you couldn't mock it up because it was so <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. extremely you know, out there. Um, are there any of your projects where you've started with musical themes and harmony and then you've worried about the, the palette second? Or is it always kind of palette and instrumentation first and then you just trust that the music, the actual notes will come later? That's a great question. Um, let me think about that. I think I come up with the palette first. And again, that's, that's being more of, a, more of a drummer. I think if I were a violin player, for example, mm. I'd be hearing my violin in my head and thinking about a melody. Um, I do have certain instruments that I love to write for, but whenever I'm working on melody or harmony, I'm always using a piano sound. I'm never thinking like, maybe this would be great in cello when I pull up a cello sample on the keyboard. Mm. I think, I wonder if this would sound good in cello, and then I put it in the range that I know I would want the cello to be, maybe the upper mid-range of the cello. Um, so it's all about the instruments first, just because, to me... The instruments, or, or lack thereof, if it's electronics or, you know, recording a barrel of dirt, um, <laughs> like for, for Far Cry, or maybe steel drums for this game, Farlands. Actually, I did them back to back, and I kept getting them confused because it was Farlands <laughs> and Far Cry, and they were yeah. com they were completely different. Yeah. Um, but the sounds to me, especially the sounds that I'm going to be able to do live, either with some other performers, uh, an entire live orchestra, or maybe me just playing everything live by myself, are the sounds are what will determine what harmonies and melodies will be in the game, and whether it's a textural score or it's a more melodic score. I actually love melody, and I try to write melody as much as I can, but a lot of times that's not, that's not what I'm asked to do. And to be fair, that's not what a particular project may need. Yeah, absolutely. It needs more textural. Um, you know, it just depends on the gig. That it also speaks to a little bit how you might even pitch for work to developers, or I'm guessing here, initial conversations on a project. You, you hear about, John Williams or whatever will sit with Steven Spielberg and say, oh, this is Schindler's theme. 
you know, sit at a piano or whatever, and Steven Spielberg would be like, oh, it made me cry. Uh, but actually, with a video game, early on, I would imagine tone and uh, tone as in the tone of the game and the tone of the world, aesthetically. And then also, because you've got to think about sound design, overall audio mix, gameplay and design and how that all might fit together. It does make sense that Palette would necessarily come first, just to be able to explain to the developers in those initial conversations. And I think there's something creatively liberating about having a limited tone palette. Uh, and I, I've, I've found, especially the older I get, I've been doing games for about 20 years now, so every project I'm sort of trying to push that palette into more rarefied air and try to do something um, a, a little more special for the game, of course, because we want to set the music apart for the game itself, but also for, for me personally to try something. Um, you know, I, I haven't used a certain instrument before or maybe... You know, I've been doing like full orchestral things for the last year and a half just because that's what the gig was. And then here comes a game that it makes sense for it not to be orchestral. So I'll throw the whole orchestra out. And <laughs> um, for example, I'm doing one now that it's just all my hardware synths. And I'm, I'm only doing synthesizers and drum machines. And I'm only using the computer basically as a glorified tape recorder. I'm not doing any editing in the computer. I'm not adding any EQ or compression in the computer. You know, it's all going in basically live. Um, now, will the, will the listener appreciate all those technical things that I just mentioned? No, but I think they'll appreciate the music that is born out of those technical limitations I'm giving myself. Because I'm going to write the music in a different way than I would if I could just rely on the computer to make everything the way I want it. I'm going to perform it differently. The score is going to sound different, you know, aesthetically speaking. Plus, I'm going to have a lot more fun. <laughs> and I, that should translate, you know, to the, the final uh, end result, hopefully. Absolutely, definitely. And remember that gamers of a certain vintage... If you have any kind of memory of video games going back 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you just learn to appreciate the creativity born of technical limitations, you know, leaving things to the player's imagination, working with constraints, whether it's budget or, or, or as you say, your, your sort of these brilliant creative choices you make at the beginning. And, and other composers talked about that, Austin, with this score for Luna, well, he said he was it. He locked himself in a studio with a piano and then sent everyone away and recorded in a lonely room or something. I think people gamers love that kind of thing, and yeah, I think they definitely appreciate that kind of gamification. Almost, you, it sound, does sound like you gamify each yeah, project yeah. for yourself. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's and it works beautifully for both internally as a creative person and externally uh, for the people who will be sort of experiencing the gameplay later on. It's a win-win. Yes, absolutely. get onto the the dark pictures anthology and i guess we could kind of include until dawn in this a little bit of course yeah being a spiritual predecessor absolutely yeah what's your role between man of medan and and this upcoming um game what's your role in making those 
cohere and fit together, even though they're anthology stories? That's another good question. And that's something that Barney Pratt and I, who's the audio director at Supermassive, and they made all three of these games. We sort of had an existential conversation about it at the beginning of Man of Medan, what role the music would have in the overall anthology versus sort of the, the individual chapters in the anthology. And a lot of it was sort of left up to us basically deciding what to do on the second one. Because I've, I've done sequels before, and they exist in the same sort of uh, universe, and they're either uh, sort of directly before or directly after. It's like a prequel or a sequel. And, you know, they're interrelatable intentionally. And um, the second game for Dark Pictures, which is called Little Hope, really has no tangible connection to Man of Medan. It takes place in different time periods. It has completely different characters. The only thread that's connecting it is the curator, who's the sort of narrator that leads you through on Man of Medan. He's kind of like the Crypt Keeper for uh, those of us who remember Tales from the Crypt. He's, he's, our, he's our Rod Serling Twilight Zone host, right? They're, they're kind of independent of each other. And I think I've had some fun, you know, dropping some little thematic Easter eggs here and there, but there isn't a whole lot of sharing going on, um, thematically speaking, definitely not harmonically or texturally speaking between these two scores, because they're about as different as you could get um, in terms of time period and orchestration um, I love the idea, like for Far Cry, it takes place in the Stone Age, so it's pre-Bronze Age. So I said, I'm not going to do any instruments that have any metal or plastic or glass or anything on them. So I'm <laughs> literally using clay pots and jars of dirt, like I mentioned. I'm shaking leaves on plants for rhythms. <laughs> um, for, for, for Moss, which is this uh, little little mouse that you're following around, and she's in this village that's just adorable. Um, I loved using lots of small instruments, um, harps and dulcimers and accordions and high-strung guitars and things that I could play myself, but also things that if you wandered into the tavern in that little mouse village, you wouldn't be surprised <laughs> to see a little mouse band in the corner playing all those instruments, right? There's something to be said about um, kind of aesthetically shared musical timbres that that just would work physically in the game itself. And uh, Little Hope, which is the follow-up to Man of Medan in Dark Pictures, I felt very much that same sort of way. I think it's the late 1700s a lot of the game takes place in, in Salem. Um, well, outside of Salem, in, in Little Hope. But there's a lot of detuned strings and... 
um, roughly played percussion and things <laughs> that really sound like you know what you would consider source music, which is our fancy word of saying music that could exist on screen. Yes, like yeah. you could see someone playing it in the corner. The little mouse band would be source music. Lots of stuff like that, uh, and that has no place in Man of Medan because that's current, and they're on a boat, and it's all modern technology, and they're using sonar and all that sort of a thing. So it's fun though because that allows us to separate not only the games but the musical identity of the games. It's interesting. It you you almost sound like, and I know you're not going to quite these extremes, but it makes you sound like a method actor. <laughs> you know, and and. And it's not that, you know, there's some opportunities for diegetic music in games, like the famous one, I guess, being the, the lute player in the Skyrim tavern right. or something you know, along those lines. But I think that gamers could appreciate that approach you're taking of, of limiting the palette in subtle ways that they might not notice, but they could still appreciate and could still kind of benefit the whole project aesthetically and listening to to man of medan cues um i don't know what cue it was but i caught a, a weird kind of james bond vibe um i guess almost more david arnold than john barry like when you know in James Bond films, they'll have a theme for that particular film. Sometimes it's in the song. There'll be like the romantic slushy version of the theme, and then there'll be a minor version where everything goes wrong. There'll be a minor sad version of the theme, and it's just like the harmony's all minor and the melody's minor. Everything's horrible. And that particular cue of Man and Madan reminded me of that, along with the like the sturm and drang of Bioshock. Or a Batman Arkham game. because it's still a dark picture it's still a horror game with little hope is that kind of minor vibe gonna be a carryover or or is it actually quite different tonally oh it's a lot worse <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's definitely a lot worse great <laughs> when you said james bond i'm pretty sure i know i don't remember the name of any of the cues but yeah there's a certain chord if i were to just play it on a piano just a chord outside of Without any other reference, you'd, you'd say, yeah, that's it. That sounds sort of James Bond. It's just a certain function of this one chord. It's sort of a jazzy kind of chord. Yeah. And, you know, Bond came around in the 60s. Barry was a big jazz guy. John Barry, the original composer. Uh, I love jazz so much. And whenever I can get away with it, I'm always trying to do some of those altered chords that are, that are a little jazzier. And there was a couple of places in Man of Medan where I could kind of 
drop those in. But uh, I'm, I'm sad to say that Little Hope is like a decrepit, rusty, <laughs> like bottom falling out of it version of that, that kind of a thing. There's actually not a lot of harmony in the score at all. It's very like drudging and kind of separate things going on. I did get my daughter to sing the main theme, though. Oh, creepy. Which is pretty cool. Oh, I don't know that she has a creepy voice. I assume she does in this uh, circumstance. Very, no, it's, her, <laughs> her voice is beautiful, but she's got this wonderful, like, upper alto. Mm. So, like, practically the whole score is in the same key. And I just got her to sing this melody, which, of course, never changes chords, but it's got a lot of bling, <laughs> bleh, like, just nasty stuff all around it. So she did a beautiful job, and then I completely made her terrifying. <laughs> children terrifying um we 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 touched on earlier uh, about digital instruments and as you say your your epiphany moment young uh, younger age came from the versatility of digital instruments i was playing final fantasy 7 remake the original is like my favorite game of all time on the remake they've just got this army of composers and arrangers and there's like 180 cues on the soundtrack which isn't even everything it's 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 nuts uh, as Austin points out in one of his recent podcasts, uh, there's almost zero line orchestrations. And kind of he was saying of all the games to not afford an orchestra, you know, live orchestral budget, that would be the one you do it on. But in terms of digital instruments versus live recordings, and as you've already mentioned, even within digital instruments, there's human performance versus computer programming or, or, you know, just drawing in the notes rather than playing them. You've explored all sorts of different ways at this point, how to reach the end goal. Do you have any strong feelings about it in terms of you know, the final product and whether whether gamers actually care? I think on a on the surface level, uh, a non-trained musician may not be able to point to something and go, that doesn't sound real. But I also think on a subconscious, subliminal level, 
a live performance is going to be more emotional, uh, let the player become more invested in the gameplay, and it's going to seem a lot, well, more natural and human than something that was done with samples, uh, which is what we're talking about. Sounds, sounds out of the computer. And it's always budget. It's, it's expensive, especially with an orchestra. Whatever your music budget is, you can go ahead and double it if you want to do live orchestra. But the music budget in a game is like less than 1% of a big game's budget. So you would think that they would allocate resources appropriately. But I promise you, with the game you're talking about, they wanted to have more music, mm. um, which is why they ended up doing it. Uh, with the computer sounds. But um, that actually reminds me of Tomb Raider, the, the first Tomb Raider that came out, the reboot in 2013. to do the cutscenes with the orchestra and do the gameplay without the orchestra. And that's kind of my biggest my biggest pet peeve when the cutscenes like they look super rendered and sound beautiful and then you get to the gameplay and you're like, "Oh, we're obviously not in the cutscenes anymore." <laughs> so I said, I said, "Let's let's not do that. Just whatever we would be budgeting for the cutscenes, let's put it towards the music." So we got more in-game music and I programmed all the orchestra sounds myself including i mean there's there's some french horn solos in there for uh for for laura's obi-wan character um roth kind of her father figure and there's a solo french horn playing his his line and it's a sample and I, I played it with a breath controller to put all the pauses in correctly and I even recorded myself doing little <laughs> with a microphone in between the phrases because it was literally just the French horn, right? You would be able to hear that in a live performance and I've had professors at colleges of music schools email me when that game first came out and the soundtrack was released wanting to know who the solo horn player was so they could congratulate them on the performance and i was like all right mission accomplished if i if i fooled them um and then other people want to know what orchestra played or where i recorded it and it's all it's all samples but the trick with that is you have to limit yourself to what's going to work Mm. and um if it doesn't sound like it's something that's that can be considered real, even if it if an orchestra can play it correctly, um, just if you can't program it in a way that makes it sound natural, then then I leave it out. I find another way to do whatever it was I wanted to do, or or maybe just cover it up. You're a guy who has to learn a lot of technology alongside a music theory, music composition, and then day to day job. Do you enjoy learning technology, like the software, even the engine stuff, maybe, if you dabble with that? Is that a side of the job that you attack with gusto, or is it something that you feel can actually, unfortunately, take away from your passion for composing and, and actual music time, music-making time? If, if I have enough time, especially talking about 
like music implementation or the in-game engine and how the music's going to work. If there's time allowed, I absolutely love it because one thing infers another thing, which infers another thing. Just like learning how to use which microphone I want to use to record this instrument to and how to EQ it and how to make it because that makes me get a better performance out of the instrument. The only time it's frustrating is when the, the pressure's on and there's no time and they need the cue by the end of the day. But honestly, that always happens on every project, film, game, TV, anything. But that's kind of the latter half of the project. The, the beginning of the project is when we have some time. And I usually try to build time in so that I can have the luxury of spending a couple of days working with the music implementation system or going and visiting the developers so we can talk about it or setting up microphones around the room and getting my stations of different instruments that I'm going to record or, as I'm doing right now, shipping my microphones to players who are going to be recording themselves so that we can get a really, like, really super great detailed recording the first time instead of them trying to struggle, um, you know, with the setup that they've put together at home because they can't go anywhere to record. Um, it's all about the time, though. I I love learning, period, whether it's, uh, you know, how to record drums better or how to play, you know, the vibes better or how to do something in the computer. If I'm not learning, I feel a little stagnant. So I think that's one of the reasons I really enjoy all these different sounds for different scores. It's like, great, now I can learn... Um, you know, finally learn how to program that synthesizer that I've loved playing for the past five years, but have only ever had a chance to just pick a preset real quick and <laughs> tweak it. Now I can really get into it and program the sounds that I hear in my head instead of relying on the ones that it already has. And I think your exceptional versatility uh, as a composer, it's really wonderful. It seems wonderful for you that, that you've bought yourself the latitude on most of the projects it would seem that, that you're taking on to be able to as you say, limit your uh, palette and then maybe stick in a bit of time to learn that new instrument or build something completely original or have a bit of fun with something to, to keep it all not just sitting at a MIDI keyboard and uh, writing moody, anxious cue number 63 on the spreadsheet. Yep, that's done. <laughs> next one <laughs> well I, I i appreciate you saying exceptional versatility that's that's very complimentary but honestly um i think what it comes down to is and and i only mention this because i'm talking more to more to composers but it, we're all we're all artists and i think um all artists want to push boundaries and experiment and the very nature of doing that means that you're venturing into the unknown and you're trying something you haven't done before so it really is for, for me, I've, every project, there's always a point where I think I've gone too far, <laughs> I've limited myself too much, or I'm trying too hard to do something different, and this isn't going to work. And if I'm, when I get to that point of about 50% fear and 50% inspiration, then I know I've sort of hit, hit the right juxtaposition of, of trying something different. Yeah. You know, I think if you're not at least a little more than scared about what you're doing yeah. for me, creatively speaking, then, then I'm not pushing enough. Yes, well, that does sound like a good way to, to push yourself out of your comfort zone.
on the point about technology, I'm not totally caught up with the Sony PS5 messaging or Xbox messaging about the next gen, but I, I think I remember catching that Mark Cerny was on about music and audio, them not having served composers and audio directors maybe very well with past hardware and that that was going to change with the next generation of consoles and there'd be more processing power and more clever things and surround sound and just generally more attention paid to it. Now, I'm going to guess that you're working on next-gen projects that you can't talk about. So let's just hypothesize that you're daydreaming about what could be possible on next-gen consoles and technology, whatever that's coming down the road for VR. Does that all excite you or does it frighten you about whether it's just going to make you know, music composition for games more granular and more complicated, or is it just like hugely exciting about the, the possibilities? Definitely exciting. Um, if if you're not into actually developing games, no one would really know this, but uh, the audio is really the only part of the game, and this has been the case since like the PS One came out. Really, um, audio is the is the only part of the game that is. Let's just say it's like HD on on the building side. Yeah. So uh, if I'm I'm making music and they're doing sound effects and everything is can be super interactive and high quality and then it all needs to get essentially dumbed down to fit yeah. onto the game because it's all about the headroom and the processors and the amount of RAM that can be in there, what can be streamed, what needs to go off the disc, what can play in RAM. And it's always uh, at the beginning of a project, the audio director and I have a dream of what we can do, <laughs> like, let's say, with the music, just the music. And then they'll have a dream of what they can do with sound effects. If it's a shooting game, I mean, they might want to have 10 different reverbs. Mm. So depending on what space you're in, you can hear the guns echo properly, right? Then it comes time to actually implement. And uh, after a couple of tests and things, you're about 25% into the building of the game that as it's going to be released and you realize instead of those 10 reverbs you can do six and instead of having this super interactive music engine it can only do half of the interactivity so everything always always ends up getting simplified it has to be simplified because the audio no matter what is going to be secondary to the graphics they're not going to say oh we'll just blur the wall textures a little more let's make the audio a higher resolution <laughs> No one picks up as quickly the quality of the audio as they do the quality of the visuals. I mean, it yes. needs to look sharp, yeah. right? It needs to be quick. It can't be any lag. It's got to be a high frame rate. And I completely agree. But with the PS5 or the new Xbox, it's like every iteration of hardware, we're getting like a bigger window into the game that we don't have to simplify as much. And... I feel like maybe this next one, we might be getting more to like 80 or 85% of what we really want to do yes. with the music and the audio. We're going to be able to do, where even on the PS4, it was more like 60%. What's always cool, you have these cycles that run, you know, five or six years, right? Hardware console cycles. Yeah. And I love how a game I'll work on at the beginning as on a launch title We'll try to push things and we can only do so much, but then fast forward five years and there's a game that's coming out at the end of that hardware cycle and we're doing twice as much with the audio just because everyone's figured out how to like squeeze more mileage out of those processors. And that that's exciting too. And then you get another jump, right? For you, because you worked on Until Dawn, which was originally a PS3 game. It was. And okay, it wasn't a launch game for PS4, but it did generation shift. Thank you. 
and then little hope is coming out right at the death you know right at the end of this this console cycle just in terms of the you know the others not being in the market yet so for you specifically is there a sort of meaningful thing you can say about what changed in terms of your vision for the project at the beginning <laughs> versus your the at what was able to be sort of finally delivered you know it, it's funny because um I mean, you say your vision, which I appreciate, but my vision is usually me and in this case, Barney again, basically putting our heads together and going, how can we make this sound really cool? And we do a wish list. And then, you know, slowly but surely, those a couple of things end up getting knocked off the list that, that we can't do. <laughs> That's a great question. And unfortunately, it's a little hard with the supermassive games to unequivocally answer simply because... There's so many um, variables to the gameplay states, right? You can do so many different endings, so many different choices, and the music is changing constantly. Yes, yeah. So really, those, those three games now, Until Dawn, Man of Medan, and, and Little Hope, uh, they were musically, from my perspective, they were written the same way I would write any game. But the way I kind of took that, let's say, that cue and broke it into puzzle pieces and gave those puzzle pieces to Supermassive to then have the game engine put the puzzle pieces back together, it was a lot different than what I would normally do with other games because it needed to be a lot more versatile. Um, we needed to cover something, I mean, it was, I don't remember how many hours, but easily two to three times more gameplay hours needed coverage for music than, than any AAA game that I'd done before. So that just meant a lot more granular music things delivered where they would have more control almost literally over every single instrument that, that I played and instrument in the orchestra. So really the governor of the musical scope or my vision, so to speak, was on Barney's end for what he was able to program. And I, I know we went from, with Until Dawn, it was just him, literally. He was doing the audio. He was implementing the music. He was... <laughs> A one-man show. Poor Barney. And with Man of Medan, it was a team of uh, five or six folks in the end. They had two or three people just doing music implementation. So that sort of shows you, I think that's the answer to your question. Everything blew up in, in scope. Right, right. Uh, both in terms of what they could do with the game and what we needed to do with the audio from kind of the beginning of the PS4 hardware cycle to the end. I got the answer to your question eventually. I just had to talk <laughs> through it. No, it was, a fanta- it was uh, really interesting. And I think those details, I think uh, our, our audience definitely understand until dawn they understand that the branching narratives we've sort of lived with that for enough years now with david cage games and that kind of thing and and i think any gamer who who would sit and think about okay well what does a composer have to do if there's a branching narrative game that it's not just going to be like oh well the music plays the same but the scenario changes like no every single permutation across the board i think it was actually quite helpful when david cage started boasting about his you know his ginormous script and then people started doing flow charts of all the endings of Heavy Rain or something. I think that's a good way of illustrating it for just the general gamer to appreciate that you are, by the end of the game, you are developing 18 different games worth of content, you know, even if it's just a, a short scene that's different. A film is two hours, it's linear, you, you do the music and, and that's it, and it's, and it's picture locked and stuff like that. It's more complicated than that, obviously, but, but I think they do have a, a sympathy for you know, game developers in general and game composers for that 
that granularity. Uh, Inon Zur, uh, uh, in a previous interview, uh, Israeli composer, about what I labelled the ethnic instruments he uses in his signature sound, um, and uh, and he sort of said, yeah, you could you could use the word ethnic, but because but his main thing was he's trying to communicate to players what the music would sound like in the world that they're inhabiting. Normally, with him, it's a fantasy world, so instead of he, he he joked instead of world music it's it's other world music and then and then finally um irish composer Eamon noon was talking about world of warcraft and she was saying she loved using um instruments from all over the world like old hebraic stuff or irish or persian instruments because it helped her and the team create a sense of another world and other nations yeah have you any thoughts on that part of that is Steering clear of what could easily be considered musical cliches. And I remember reading, I can't remember the film composer now, but someone, a famous film composer, like, you know, Jerry Goldsmith or someone, was scoring uh, a movie, you know, maybe it was Congo. It was a jungle movie. And the, the music editor or the director was pushing for more, quote unquote, jungle kinds of sounds, and let's just say it was Jerry Goldsmith. I don't remember, but the composer's response was, "Are am I scoring a a, um, a fictional film, or are we doing a documentary? Is this a, a piece of fiction of entertainment, or are we seriously trying to document what music from the people who lived in this jungle were going to sound like?" And that sort of, in my head at least, kind of set up how far I would ever want to push something. Like, let's say, oh, we're in the desert, so I want to use, um, you know, a shakuhachi or something that's going to be associated with quote-unquote desert kinds of sounds. Yeah. I, I read um, something with James Horner for Avatar that he spent all this time researching all these different cultures of music. And I can only assume that most of this is true because he was a genius and I loved how he, he sort of fell back on some things that he liked, like the shakuhachi, which is what made me <laughs> think about it. But he also was always trying some different things. Um, so he came up with this whole musical language of this crazy stuff that the Navi on Pandora for Avatar would sound like when they sang or when they played instruments. And basically... James Cameron heard it and it was like, that's not going to work because it's too foreign. You know, it's, it's too out there. It doesn't have, there's nothing that the audience can relate to, musically speaking, right, with, with what right. you're coming up with. And it's like, on, so on one end you have James Horner kind of pushing and going as far into something unrecognizable, new territory as he could. And then you have James Cameron, which he has... 
you know, a, a vision, like we were talking about with film and TV, you're following the director's vision. Yeah. He said, no, it's not going to work. And, and literally said something like, you need to make it more uh, American or you need to make it more U.S. You need to make it more Western. Right. So it ended up being really, really, really watered down. And um, that wasn't what James Horner originally wanted. But I think there's, a, there's equal footing somewhere between those two extremes where you can try something and you can push some boundaries. And I do it all the time, honestly. I have, being a percussionist, and, and doing sort of cultural world studies in college and, you know, playing in steel bands and African music ensembles and Mideast music ensembles. I just collect all these instruments for fun, but also for games. And a lot of times, just simple drums, for example, like a hand drum that maybe is from Egypt. If I played the traditional kind of rhythm on this hand drum, you would immediately think of like Egypt and the desert and things like that. But if I intentionally played it, not with the original rhythms and not in the traditional way that people from Egypt would play it, you don't really think of anything specific. You just think it sounds like a drum that doesn't really have any you know ethnic associations to it. And that was what I started with in Tomb Raider. I was playing all kinds of drums wrong essentially <laughs> and just using them as drums in in my ensemble That's what folks like Hans Zimmer do a lot of the times. They're using all these ethnic drums as a big ensemble of drums. And in a way, I see it as, to get back to your original question, it's more of an appreciation of people around the world and how everyone has come up with their own way of expressing themselves through music. You know, we're, we're not trying to water that down with the idea that their cultural view of music isn't important. It's more getting a universal view and injecting sort of flavors subtly, I think, that, that work for whatever world this is that this particular game is supposed to have music for. And it comes together kind of like recipes in a pizza. It comes <laughs> together as its own thing. And it's not like, oh, well, there's an Egyptian dunebeck and a Mideastern oud. And then I think I hear like an Appalachian dulcimer. And you, you don't hear that. You just hear a unique combination of instruments that uh, complement each other and, and, and work for a united goal, yeah. which to me is what music is. It, it brings us all together. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting about audio because you can not hear, a, not see a thing, but you hear a sound and instantly your past history with that sound is brought to the forefront of your mind, whether you consider it sounds like an Egyptian sound or an American sound or an African sound. Mm. I've always loved African rhythms uh, simply because they would sing 
whatever rhythm worked with what they were singing about. Yeah. You know, so if they're if they're singing like this morning I went to the store, it's like the rhythm is this morning I went to the store. This morning I went to the store. And it would be this non-symmetrical rhythm that they had no problem performing because it, it was based on their language. That's what I love is the musical language of all these cultures kind of coming together while still being individual and unique, being able to come together and and, and offer what I consider, a, you know, a tiny bit of music education to people who maybe are not aware that that's the background of African rhythm, for example. You know, it's it's all about education. Let's do this again sometime. Yes, I'd absolutely love to. My wife and I really enjoyed Until Dawn. I'm, uh, if I'd had more time, we'd got two young kids running around. If I'd had more time, I would have made my <laughs> wife and I sit down and pass the pad over Man of Medan and um, let you scare the shit out of us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's what, so my, my two little kids that were, that were little uh, 12, 13 years ago when the first Dead Space came out, now they're 15 and 18. So I sat and my 15-year-old my played through Until Dawn um, in, in th- over three or four sittings. And I sat with her just to kind of in, in enjoy it. And um, it's fun because she'd jump and she'd go, thanks, Dad. Brilliant. <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, you know. <laughs> it's great. That's fantastic. It's been wonderful chatting. And uh, thank you very much for your time. Totally my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again to Jason Graves for joining me to chat gay music and share his insight. I hope you enjoyed the interview.